Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, a company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid high amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself. With 25% off at ritual.com slash prenatal. And now, a bit of day drinking in a corporate conference room high above Manhattan's Chelsea district. There's a peppy team meeting across the hallway and lots of glass walls and cubicles. As someone who hasn't been on a corporate health plan in almost a decade, I'm a bit allergic to this kind of setting, but chef and author Samin Nusrat is a powerful draw. Her best selling book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, Just launched as a beautiful series on Netflix. I've spent my entire life in pursuit of flavor. I've traveled the world to explore the things that define good cooking. I brought her a bottle of lo fi aperitifs gentian amaro, and Samin and I raided the Netflix pantry for a mandarin orange, some tonic, and a two inch cleaver they had for some reason. In this episode, I make her a terrible cocktail, which she handles with grace, and then we talk about Italy, television, And how to help others in life and in cooking. I'm Nathan Thornburg, and you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. So, this is the plan. This is a really fucked up plan.、Um, tonic, Amaro, cold brew. Okay, I trust you. <laughs> <laughs> your first mistake. It's, it's the best stuff. All right, let's do nitro cold brew. I'm just going to let you drive. <laughs> This could be something quite disastrous. <laughs> This could be a new sub cross. All right, it's, it's layering nicely, though. It's a little brutal. Tequila sunrise situation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's a beautiful liqueur. That's like a hibiscus color. It's like a Jamaica.、Mm-hmm. Mm. It looks like Coke. Now you, you made me a drink that looks like Coke. <laughs> We've made two Cokes. <laughs> This is something I would do. <laughs> It's like construct something out of whatever's there. Yeah, don't say、and、that until you've tasted it. This <laughs> might be something you would never do. No, I've definitely made some bad choices. <laughs> All right.、Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just set out at the beginning you don't have to have more than one sip of this.、Okay. Oh, it's quite delightful and、oh. coffee ish. <laughs> oh, shit. That is not delight on Samin's face.、Um, <laughs> it's a good thing about podcasting. It's you, true. Your voice could sell it, but.、Uh, <laughs> Maybe I'll just drink it plain.、Uh, I think that might be the call.、Um, it's so pretty. I mean, this really is how you're supposed to do it. You shouldn't be doing all this. But there is a good cocktail out there to be done with、Absolutely. cold pressed coffee and bitters. That for sure.、This、I'm not was, sure this is the right cocktail. This、cocktail. was not it. 
This was not the one. Mm, it's so flowery. It's very delightful. It's very sweet. It needs a lot of acid. It needs like a lemon and squeeze it in there or something or an orange. Oh, wait, we have one. <laughs> Would you? <laughs> Can I have honest, the cleaver, please? I'm now. This is a ceremonial <laughs> passing of the cleaver. It's getting there. It could. It's just too early, boss. <laughs> is that the thing? <laughs> uh, it's like 10 a.m., so really no cocktail is going to taste exactly the way um, that Bill W. would have made it up. Yeah, and Simon has an entire day of press and... Well, that's why exactly why I need to start the day like this. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that I'm going to be able to start you off on the right foot. So speaking of press, we're here for this uh, show. You're here for this show, which I've now watched uh, on loop. Oh, awesome. It's gorgeous. It's, I mean, it's literally gorgeous. And that's the thing that I wasn't really expecting. I knew it would be instructional and informative and inspiring, but it's like chef's table for home cooks or something. Yes. Yeah, because it's gorgeous, but really you're coming at it not from a like watch me wander perspective, but you have you have some serious like pedagogical points that you're hitting along the way. So tell me a little bit about that show. Did you always see this book for, for television? Was it someone else kind of dragged you to the medium? Well, in 2007, I taught my first cooking class and I came back and reported to some of my colleagues in the kitchen that it was so inefficient to teach 12 upper middle class Berkeley women cooking lessons one at a time for four hours. And wouldn't it be so much more efficient if I had a television show where I could teach people how to cook? So it's definitely been on my mind for a while. It wasn't necessarily something that I sought out single-mindedly. I'm a performative person. I'm a performer. And so I think I was ready for that. In terms of how this happened, oh, the other funny, like, quirky thing is that After I sold my book deal and I started working on the book, I treated myself to an appointment with San Francisco's premier astrologer. And she told me her name is Jessica Laniato. All right. (laughs) And it's a thing where, like, it costs $200 and it takes – there's a six-month waiting list. But I went on the site and there happened to be a cancellation and it was on my birthday. So I went. (laughs) And I asked her – You say happened, but this this was obviously (laughs) meant to be. And I went to go see her. And I said, oh, can you tell me anything about my book? And she said, oh, there's going to be a, a film deal. And I was like, are you sure? Because she didn't know anything about the kind of a book it was. I was like, "Are you? that's insane. And she was like, no, I see it. So it became this joke with Wendy, who illustrated the book, Wendy McNaughton, and with my um, agent and my editor, where we all started like jokingly deciding who would play us in the movie version. <laughs> I was Maya Rudolph, obviously. And then... <laughs> well cast. So it was sort of there in the back of the mind. And then when we ended up, it ended up getting optioned, the way the option worked, I think it was a film option. So she wasn't wrong. I am a really visual thinker, and cooking is so visual. And I very much knew what I wanted the book to be, visually and I also knew that I wanted the show to be very beautiful. Yeah. I love beautiful things. I love that you like nailed it. You said it's Chef's Table for home cooks because there's a great debt that I owe to Chef's Table because I think that they showed us what that food television could be cinematic and beautiful. Yeah. And they sort of set a precedent for that. 
that made it possible for me to imagine that I could have a show that was so beautifully shot. I had an idea that I wanted it to be beautiful. I don't know anything about making television or film or anything like that, so there had to be an incredible you know, team of amazing director, amazing cinematographer who really made that happen, and were, were, they were able to translate my dreams into something real, but I'm so glad that it landed for you that way. If we can go back to the astrologer, that seems like very hocus pocus for someone who famously has a manifestation journal of like all the goals and there's no astrology involved you're not like oh, let's just see if the star is a line and something it's like i want this to happen i want that to happen and of course the 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 punchline about your manifestation journal is that it's all come true or it has some of its thing yeah, yeah. some things <laughs> or or that's not your goal anymore Right, right. Well, the funny thing is, though, I mean, don't you think your manifestation journal is kind of hocus pocus? I have not yet gotten to a place where I'm willing to, like, completely deny that anything is impossible, you know? (laughs) Wait, all right, I'm I'm wrapped those negatives. That was a lot of negatives. I'm willing to believe in anything, basically. You know, and maybe astrology is a thing, right? And in a way, I mean, now you're asking me to go seriously into my, like, California, like, hippie language. But, like, a manifestation journal is putting words to dreams and going to see somebody who's telling you something is putting words to possibility. So aren't they both about energy in a way and like creating some little the like kernel at the heart of a snowball that could possibly snowball and turn into something? Yeah, that's at the start of all our traditions. It's like uh, the word made it so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, all right, all right. Manifestation astrology. Yeah. <laughs> Coming, coming to a West Coast metropolis near you soon. Um, I'm ready, and I'm, I'm really. You'll be my first customer. <laughs> That'd be amazing. You know, obviously, we're here to celebrate the show you did, and you're on this tour, and it's just like success after success. Like, what do you do now? Do you go back to cooking for a bit? I'm gonna rest. You're going to rest. Yeah, I'm excited about that. All right. And then I had an idea at some point, I think, increasingly over the last several years, it's hit me that um, people look at me. (laughs) You know, people are watching me. That I'm a person opening, that has the power to open doors for other people. Yeah. Or at least blaze paths for other people who maybe are not like the most traditional. Yeah. Person in the food world. (laughs) And, uh, or just the world. And um, I take that responsibility really seriously and I think of it as a privilege and I'm really excited to get some more power and use that power to continue opening doors for other people and in some ways it's kind of lonely to be the brown girl that everybody wants on the back cover you know blurb in their book or on their panel or you know whatever the let's call Samin let's call Samin wouldn't it be amazing for me to be able to help create a community around me, you know, and so that I'm not the only one, so that there are so many other amazing voices that people can turn to. You would have to fight a a lot of the, you know, entropy and laziness of editors. People are out there I'm doing it. And I learned a lot about that, about, like, the realities of production while making this, that a lot of the time it would be easier to just use the most popular person that everybody refers to when they go to a place rather than to work harder and find somebody off the beaten path. And it does take work and it is hard, but it's worth it. And it's important work, I think, that has to be done. And so for me, I'm like, well, now that I have some resources, why don't I do some of that work 
and fight some of those fights. And yeah. there's a way, too, where I'm excited, like, um, you know, if I write another book, I know that there will be um, a lot of interest in that book. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, what else can I get besides just money from publishers? How yeah. can I use that interest from publishers to help bolster other people and other voices? And so I'm trying to devise ways of, like, bringing other people along with me. You know, I think a big thing in publishing is there are very few editors of color. I don't think I've ever met one. Yeah, book publishing? Book publishing, particularly, really is a quite white. And so if maybe instead of, like, just complaining about it, like I always do, I can actually do something about it and yeah. start, like, trying to figure out how do I foster that. And same thing if I, you know, I think I would like to probably do some more production work and it's going to be really important for me to work with people of color. And if it's hard for me to find them, then I will help make them be. <laughs> you know, if they don't exist, then we're going to make it your happen. Own golem. Yeah. What I saw and really appreciated about your show, which was it was very quiet. Mm -hmm. It's like you don't even realize until, and I was watching the Mexico acid, um, that sounds like it's going the wrong way, the <laughs> chapter, it's. <laughs> Salt, fat, acid, heat. Four <laughs> episodes, each after one of those elements. Acid is shot in Mexico, in the Yucatan primarily. It's amazing. I was watching it with my wife, who's, you know, whose mom's from Mexico. And we were like sort of halfway through before we just kind of said, this whole thing has been all women of color, basically. And it's not like you were standing in the front and just be like, now you're going to watch some television that's with women of color. No, you're you're pulling people along for the ride that you want to take them on. And it just it just gets there. And that's something that is like, that's the next level mm -hmm. that it feels like we're arriving. It's not performative. It's yeah. not like, you know, it's, it's not checking boxes. It's just actually how the world is. Mm -hmm. I, not to like kiss your butt or whatever but hey. I listened <laughs> I did listen Let's to an amazing interview with you the long form interview and that was when I the first time I really sort of listened to you talk about the um, philosophy behind roads and kingdoms and your work and that you do really prioritize finding people on stop drinking that thing <laughs> I'm sorry I'm just like, if you need water here <laughs> I'm so unable to handle praise I'm You're actually <laughs> drinking this horrible cocktail that I made yeah to but like to stop. me I don't completely disagree with you that it's getting better I think one very important thing one very important aspect of what quote unquote getting better is is us just having conversations about it and talking about something and putting words to it and bringing language and articulating that there is something that needs to be addressed. And yeah, I don't think it has to be the super in-your-face thing. What I loved about listening to you was that you talked about the way that you look for people in the places to tell the stories of those places. And that just right there is a really radical thing. And that really like struck me big time. And I thought about that a lot as we were making this show, actually, mm -hmm. because even though maybe I'm not, like, the typical colonizer, like, I don't look like the guy, the Western European guy, like, blah, 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 I'm still not of those places. And so I'm an outsider. So by definition, when an outsider goes somewhere, a different kind of story is told. And I'm very aware of that and very sensitive to it. And I think it's, I'm going to let it define whether or not I ever do another travel show. Hmm. I still have to sit with it and feel, like, what that really, really right. is going to feel like. Maybe what I can do is produce a show about places that's made by 
the people of those places. Maybe that's a way to do it. I don't know. I just think there are so many other ways to think through storytelling that we have not even begun to explore because we're just used to one way of storytelling. Speaking as someone who's much more advanced than you in my colonial burden, (laughs) you'll never catch up to me. I'm a white man. (laughs) Part of it is what I got from, from Bourdain. Also was that sense of like, okay, we all have a platform that we don't deserve on some level because you realize that 99% of humanity of is pure suffering and certainly not elevated to have their opinions mean shit to anybody in the media world. So you have this platform and Tony never, you know, he never interrogated too much about what to do with it since he never thought he deserved it on some level. He was just like, it's here. And when you were talking about moving to some level where you can like raise up other people, that's a lot of what his life had been about in the last five or 10 years. This podcast is called The Trip. We have an ecumenical view of travel, what that means. It's not tourism. It's something hopefully uh, deeper and more meaningful it feels like we should talk about Italy mm-hmm. and and that trip that you took and the why and how and and what people can learn from whatever the fuck it did for your life, mm-hmm. which seems to have been pretty pretty salubrious. <laughs> can put it that way. <laughs> I don't know why I've always been fascinated with Italy, and I've always felt a kinship to the people, I don't know, we have similar skin tone and we're both hot-blooded. I'm, my family's from Iran, so Iranians are like hot-blooded brown people. Italians, a lot of them are hot-blooded brown people. So, but you're uh, a Persian-American <laughs> growing up in San Diego. Yeah, totally. You're dreaming of Tuscany. Yeah, I, I can't say that, maybe the always is an exaggeration, but probably certainly since, since I was in college and I always had loved Italian food. I didn't know too much about it, but of all of the you know, all my friends, so many of them went to Western Europe for their year abroad. I went to London. And so there was a way where when I was thinking about the Western European countries, it felt like Italy would be the one where I wanted to go. And I didn't speak Italian, so I didn't really make it. I went for one of those little visits that you do with your college friends and you eat ribolita at the like, you know, in Florence in July. Because you're like, everyone's like, what you eat in Italy is ribolita. In Florence is ribolita. And you're like, what is this? Why is it so? And you went so. back after that. <laughs> yeah. I've been to Florence in July. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> it's, an am- it's a soul amputation. It was really bad. But I didn't know any better. And actually, one really beautiful thing was when I went there with my friends, we um, stayed in like a hostel on the old Trarno on the other side of the not the main side of Florence but the other side of the Arno and we walked past every day to get to our hostel we'd walk past this be- this building with this amazing wrought iron gate that looked into this courtyard that then like the apartments were around and there were all these like potted plants it was so beautiful in there and it was just you know in the cobblestone and it just felt like from 500 years ago and I thought to myself, like, one day I'm going to live in a building like that. Like, one day I just want to live in a building like that. And then... Um, manifestation astrology. <laughs> manifestation astrology. And then I went back to the States. I eventually started working at Chez Panisse where I became fascinated. I, that really fostered this fascination with Italy. Also because the cooking of that restaurant really is inspired primarily by the, like, sort of Mediterranean coast, the, like, Provence... 
Barcelona stuff and then like, you know, Italy. I really resonated a lot more with Italian flavors than and the Italian style of cooking than I did with the French cooking. And I saw other young cooks would go to Italy or France and do an internship and come back and sort of know so much more, have so much more content. It was kind of like a trip to visit the like as an academic, like studying your primary sources. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. So they set up a, an internship for me with this woman, Benedetta Vitale, at her restaurant which was called Zibibo in Florence. And Benedetta in 1979 with her husband Fabio Picchi had opened Cibreo in Florence, which is really an institution there. And mm. it was a restaurant that they opened at a time when they saw a lot of people in Italy starting to eat a lot more processed foods and traditions were getting really like um, blurry and they committed to having a restaurant that served just Tuscan food, which isn't very pasta-based. There was no pasta on the menu, which was kind of revolutionary. And they had things like chicken hearts and polenta and like all these kinds of just traditional, very rustic Tuscan things. And it became, it's the restaurant where when like people say, oh, you're going to Florence, you go to Cibrea. Yeah. So they split up and she opened her own place on the outskirts of town. And she had some Sicilian blood, so she really wanted to explore Sicilian flavors. Huh. So I went and worked for her in this tiny little place. The kitchen was tiny galley kitchen. There were four women. It was the best education I could have gotten. They were so kind and gentle to me. Benedetta speaks English, but no one else did. So I really had to learn Italian very quickly to catch up. And because it was so small, I got so much attention. And Benedetta, at first she put me up in this monastery, like a nunnery, maybe half a mile away from the restaurant. And I lived there for two months with these nuns, and I would, like, wash my clothes on a washboard. And then she moved me into an apartment. Like, we were waiting for an apartment to open up, and she moved me into the apartment, and it was in the building. And it took me a while to realize that it was this building because several years had passed. But I, like, walked... I was like, oh, I've seen this wrought iron fence in this courtyard before. And it was there. It was... (laughs) This is turning into full (laughs) The Secret. It's fully The Secret. It was so bananas. Breaks through life, sees (laughs) sees what appeals and uh, somehow manifests it It all. It was amazing. And so so I, I got to live there and cook for Benedetta for, I don't know, about six months. And then I went and lived in the north of Italy for about six months in Piemonte, and then I went. Just, just I a garbage place. Yeah, terrible place. <laughs> <laughs> the, and and the you rolling know. hills with the roof, uh, the uh, hilltop uh, medieval fortresses that all have their own um, varietal names after them. Every just, single one. I learned. I honestly, because my family's from Iran. My parents didn't drink. I didn't grow up with a super. Yeah, I didn't grow up with wine in my house. So by the time I made it to Chapinese, first I broke the rule. And had some pork, and then I became, and then I broke the next rule and started drinking wine. But wine has always been a little bit intimidating and scary for me. It's just beyond, yeah. I don't know. I mean, we would eat lunch. We would eat the simplest lunches, you know, like chicken liver toast, and then they'd give me two different kinds of wine. So I really, I it was really an intensive education, and it was just about tasting and learning how to identify what I liked and what I didn't like. So that was really cool. And then. Um, and then I came back to Florence for another year or so and worked again with Benedetta. And also with um, all throughout my Italy time, I worked really closely with Dario Cecchini, the butcher in Panzano and Chianti. And um, he is has just been such an incredible force of kindness and generosity in my life and really made... I would say, made Tuscany feel like my second home. Mm. It was also so formative because it was so early in my cooking career, and I got a lot of my foundational taste references there. 
You know, I knew what the difference suddenly between like Pecorino and Parmesan was. I knew what the difference between a young Pecorino and an aged Pecorino was. And there wasn't snobbery around it. Right, it was you don't just have to be I an asshole knew. about it. It was just that now I right. knew what that taste was. You know, I learned how like in little towns, you know, grandmothers have had like 300-year arguments about on this side of the river, we put pancetta in our ragu, and on that side, we put sausage in our ragu. And that how, you know, there was this amazing moment where one day I cooked dinner for my friends in Florence, and I made squash blossoms, like stuffed fried squash blossoms. And they were like, you are a genius. This is amazing. How did you ever come up with this? And I was like, you know this is from Rome, like 100 miles away. But they're so sort of, provin- like, um, right. not provincial, but regional Wait in their Wait till they tastes. try pizza. I know. <laughs> I know. And so there was a way where I just, I got an amazing appreciation for the commitment to tradition yeah. that they have there. And that really has um, directed my cooking life. Well, and that also, the, the idea of Italians fighting, which is just something that happens in the course of daily life, fighting about food can be chalked up to whatever, you know, the sort of hot-bloodedness. But it's actually, it's like the tip of a much more interesting and important iceberg. From my point of view, they it means they care. Mm-hmm. And obviously they're fighting the same kind of trends in modernity and, and, you know, being overworked and, you know, having less time to cook and all of this. But but at the root of that culture is a no bullshit passion for food. You know, it's going to be lost, you know, a, in a much longer process mm-hmm. than here in the States. And that was very moving to me, especially as a person who came from a family where, like, food was our culture. It was the way that my mom taught us about Persian culture. It was the way that we related to our family members about the place that they had come from. And it was the way that I started to form an image of what Iran possibly looked and tasted like, was that the highest compliment in our family was when some ingredient tasted like Iran. Yeah. I would be like, this tastes good. And they'd be like, this tastes like Iran. (laughs) (laughs) So you, uh, so you did two years in Italy, mm-hmm. and then you came back to Chez Panisse. And then, no, well, the chef who had been my mentor at Chez Panisse, his name is Chris Lee, he had opened his own Italian restaurant. So I was so infatuated with Italy that I went to work for him. So I worked for him for five years, and eventually I was running that kitchen. And then in 2009, that restaurant closed. And I was like, thank God, I don't have to work in restaurants anymore. Because <laughs> I had always wanted to be a writer. I was like, this is my chance to figure out a new definition for what it means to be a professional cook, where I get to write, I get to cook sometimes. And it was hard. And it was definitely if there was like major financial sacrifice involved in figuring that out and, and seeing what it could look like. Because I also watched, you know, by that point I was 29, 30 and I was watching a lot of my friends, particularly my female friends, as they were getting to 35 or 40. Like, you can't really work in a restaurant anymore, f- like physically, you know, emotionally. <laughs> um, and financially, it's really hard. And if you want to have kids, you can't really do that work. So I watched as a lot of them hit sort of dead ends in their culinary careers or got really frustrated or sort of just would go get jobs doing like private chefing for people that didn't really care about food and it really um that was a big motivation for me to invest reinvest my energy in writing which I had never fully given up but I just knew that I needed something else because I would I wouldn't make it as just a cook yeah um for all you listening at home 
it is terrifying to start to try to write for a living. The rejections are so heavy and uh, so frequent, and the ocean seems so large. Yeah, um, and f I mean, I basically lived off of like between twelve and eighteen thousand dollars a year for a lot of years, like just eating beans. I mean, also like I live in the food world, so I was never going to be hungry. But <laughs> <laughs> you can always but, sneak into the yeah, and I can also always cater, and I can always figure, right. and I did. I worked really hard, but I also took the scary leap of moving into an office with a bunch of other writers and coming to work even though I didn't have an assignment and figuring out what that would look like. And I have an amazing community of writers around me who helped you know, guide me and tell me what a pitch is and yeah. how do I do this. And, and then by then, Michael Pollan, who was my writing mentor really and also my cooking student, he had encouraged me to turn this idea into a book. So it took me about two years to, of like teaching classes, writing the handouts, the curriculum for the classes, and then transforming that curriculum into a book proposal because that was from 2009 to 2011 no still another year and a half no and then we sold the book in 2013 so it took f almost four years yeah we are doing a cookbook which um, oh exciting which is hilarious because as you can tell from my cocktails i don't know how to cook for <laughs> shit but we're working on this cookbook uh and i am like following after they've done all the head notes and the recipe testing and everything, I'm following and adding just like pure lunacy and idiocy to the process of just like, I've been trying to cook this stuff. And actually, I think there are things that are useful to that because... Yeah, of course. What I've realized, for example, is that some of these, some of these recipes, they say, add salt. But I don't have the cojones to add the kind of salt that people need to add, you know, that I think for, for chefs and for my partner who's writing this, they know you add a, a fist of salt. No, you're the guinea pig and you're really important. What's your version of the three things that someone like me just fucks up in the kitchen constantly because I, you know, I don't have the bravery of a professional chef? Okay, bravery is one word and <laughs> maybe just experience is another the main thing that comes to mind that I see people do is they crowd too many things into a pan, whether it's on the stove or in the oven, like on a baking sheet. If your goal is to get the thing to remain colorless and be tender because maybe you're going to cook it a second way, then go ahead and crowd it. <laughs> but if you want like delicious crispy edges on your roasted broccoli and you want it to be like perfectly browned on the outside and tender on the inside then you have to leave room. You can't crowd too many things onto a That's pan. a universal desire. It shouldn't right? touch. <laughs> flabby, uh, flabby, soft. <laughs> flabby and soft is crowded. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and crisp and tender, you know, crisp and like cooked all the way through yeah. is spread out. And the reason is because you need to leave room for steam to escape because things only start to brown at temperatures far beyond the boiling point, the evaporation point of water. Yeah. So if they're all touching, that steam is going to condense and recycle and recycle and recycle, and the temperature's never going to get hot enough in there for it to brown. And you end up with 1960s American exactly. vegetables. Two is absolutely using enough salt. Let's not even say enough salt. It's adding the salt at the right time. So if you're making a pot, something boiled in a pot of water, yeah. of salty water, the salt needs to be already in there and completely like dissolved, and you have to have your nice salty environment. If for chicken, for any meat, I like to salt it as far in advance as I possibly can, up to like a day maybe, so that the salt has time to penetrate and really distribute itself throughout so that every bite is perfectly seasoned and not just the skin. 
it is like pretty statistically proven that you end up putting more salt on at the table if your food is under seasoned than you would have if you had just properly seasoned it in right. the first place because you're like this is missing something but often that salt at the end at the last minute isn't going to be what makes it taste it's good anyway so yeah, yeah it's not going to fill the hole in your heart yeah <laughs> and then the other thing i think is again like pretty rookie mistake that is pretty easy to fix is you got to preheat your pan before you add your fat and before you add whatever. So the only two places I don't do that is if I'm going to, say, like, bloom some garlic, like, gently cook some garlic, because I don't like it when garlic gets browned because yeah. then the flavor gets bitter. So garlic is so gentle that I might start that from zero or, say, if I needed onions to also not be browned, like, super hard. But everything else, you preheat your pan, you add your olive oil or your whatever you're adding so that and let that get hot. And if your pan is hot, the oil will immediately get hot. And then you add your ingredient and you want to hear a sizzle. So if you're not sure, then you can just add like a drop of water into the pan before you add your oil or even like very carefully a drop of water after you add your oil. Amazing. That's shit that even I can do. Yeah. Anybody can do that stuff. Yeah. So it's a good, those are, those are like the three basics, I think. Since I'm, I'm liking sort of life hacker Samin, because especially after people see the show, they're going to they're going to start to do the shit they always did with Bourdain, which is like, why can't I be her? I want to do that. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. So scary. <laughs> so tell me just about Italy. Like, what's an entry point? How can someone kind of have an experience or, or be affected in a way, get that like good marrow uh, from from Italy? Taste everything and pay attention to everything that you taste is really the thing. And already you're going to Italy to eat. Everyone goes to Italy to eat. You're already doing that. So just take the time to taste and to note. And especially if you're taking a trip where you're traveling all over, it's really kind of fun to pay attention to the regional differences. Go to the farmer's market and see what people are eating. Every time you go to a different town anywhere in Italy, you know, look at the street food and you'll be like, oh, here, like in, in, in Florence, they're all about Lampredotto, which is the um, tripe sandwiches. But like they don't have tripe sandwiches, you know, in Piemonte. That's not the thing they eat there. So pay attention to those local things because that in my mind, I think of it as a filing cabinet in my mind. Yeah. I feel like I have a flavor card for everything I've ever hmm. eaten. And that is what I refer to. And that is what I think makes you a good cook, is being able to remember and evoke the taste of a place and refer to that. And of course, in Brooklyn or Berkeley or you know Lincoln, Nebraska, your thing isn't going to taste exactly the same. But if you have a goal in your mind that you're working toward then that's how you're going to get closest to it with whatever you've got. And it's also the practice, right? It's not even, it's just the practice of paying attention. Yeah. It's like, I, th yeah. I think like a big part of cooking is practice. And some of that is in the kitchen. And a lot of that is just when you're eating huh. and paying attention when you taste. Well, shit, now eating is something I do pretty well. So I bet. Maybe, maybe. You're probably already halfway there. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I need to take my game. The mixology we're going to work on, um, I mean, we're here at this long table in Netflix, and I've absolutely destroyed one end of it with uh, um, <laughs> mandarin orange and these drinks that'll never get drunk. No. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of tempted to pour them into this the ficus, um, which I probably shouldn't do. But, um, Don't do that. <laughs> ficus will die. Ficus <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if it's not good for the ficus, it's not good for us. I mean, this is not a good sign. Um, all right. Well, uh, congratulations on Thank the show. You. I am so thrilled that I got to talk to you. Because, Thank you for coming here. Uh, so nice. Uh, so it nice is, to talk to you. It is a, uh, it's, it's just a, a deep, soulful pleasure uh, to be with you. So, um, all right. Watch the show, people. Jesus. <laughs>
<laughs> I'm such a good pitch man. Hey, asshole, watch the show. It's, it's Come on, really guys. Good. All right. Thank you, Samin. Thanks, Nathan. The Trip is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg, produced by Josie Holtzman and Danielle Roth of Future Projects. Our editor is Roads and Kingdoms' Taffy Mokanyadze. Our executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Special thanks to San Francisco's own Dan the Automator for the music and to my old-time magazine colleague Adele Rodriguez for the art. An extra shout to listener Angela in Chicago, who was moved enough by last week's cornbread conversation with Nicole Choi to write me about how important cornbread is in the African-American experience. As a kicker, she sent a picture of cornbread she'd cooked herself in a cast-iron skillet. It was gorgeous. The kind of cornbread that makes you want to hop on a plane and invite yourself over for dinner. Thank you, Angela. Our Very Hungry Edit staff will be there soon. You can email us at the trip at Roads and Kingdoms if you have any thoughts, taunts, or perfect meals we need to know about. Next Monday, the trip will be in Oaxaca, talking with Paulina Garcia, who grew up in the Americanized north of Mexico, about what it's like to live and make food in Oaxaca's indigenous heartland. We'll meet you there. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.